Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We've heard this saying that laughter is powerful medicine. Well, Mark Kendall believes the power of laughter can help change attitudes and lead to better understanding about racism. Later this hour... The Atlanta-based artist will tell us about his series of comic videos, which began release in the late spring of 2020. First, Grammy Award-winning rapper, passionate political activist, Atlanta business owner, and arts enthusiast, Michael Santiago Render better known as Killer Mike, does it all. And now he's the host of a new television series on our TV station, ATL-PBA. Each week, on Love and Respect with Killer Mike, he conducts a new interview with a politician, artist, athlete, civic leader, or celebrity. Tomorrow at 10 p.m., he'll speak with Atlanta producer, director, and actor Tyler Perry. Killer Mike joins me now via Zoom. Michael, welcome to City Lights. Look, I am very happy to be here. Thank you for hosting me. I'm honored. Likewise, and you are such a busy artist with a long list of accomplishments. Why did you want to step into the role of TV host and journalist? Well, I didn't consider myself a journalist until a journalist told me I was a journalist when I was filming a Today Show piece a couple of days ago <laughs> for the Wish um, Sneaker Shop. Um, I was just a curious, chubby 10-year-old kid who would embarrass my mom by going places and asking people a ton of questions. And I think I get that from her mom who raised my grandmother, Betty. My mother was Denise. My grandmother, Betty, and my grandfather, Willie, raised And I was raised around a bunch of interesting people. I grew up in a neighborhood called the Collier Heights, mm -hmm. which was a black enclave on the west side of Atlanta that was started by the black community for itself in 1948. It didn't wish to fight to be somewhere it wasn't wanted. So I grew up in a mixed income community. So I had everyone from Ralph David Abernathy, the King parents, um, your regular Joe Smoles, my teachers and principals lived in my neighborhood. And I just found myself talking to people. I'm naturally curious. So I always wanted to be on TV talking to people. And here I go. That curiosity has served you very well. In 2019, you starred in the funny, provocative Netflix series, trigger warning and on the show <laughs> yeah we are both laughing <laughs> listeners if you're not familiar check it out on trigger warning you got to try out some revolutionary ideas in real life to see if they would result in social change how did that experience help prepare you for hosting love and respect well trigger warning was 16 hour day it was dealing with lots of different 
personalities. It was me as a musician attempting to learn to be in front of a camera. I learned a lot. I worked incredibly hard, but we came out with a great show. Um, and a lot of good things happened from that show. For me, what it taught me, um, a, a very good friend of mine comes out of TV production, and she said to me, the most respectful thing you can do is show up on time and knowing what your job is and doing. Mm. So coming in the trigger warning, I took that really serious. I took it seriously as she had worked with PBS, so she knew don't play because they're real pros over it. And um, I took it seriously in that I really wanted past trigger warning and love and respect. I really wanted love and respect to be in show that was the antithesis of kind of what people are used to. Right now, people are polarized. People kind of identify under the banners of whatever the ism they claim. And they really are staunchly fortified against or always looking for opposition to their idea or feels that way versus people who just approach each other as two human beings and sit down and have a conversation about the who, what, why, and where, so who the person is. It reminded me of why as a kid um, I liked Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. He, never, he never seemed to be imposing an idea on me except for the fact that I should treat myself and my neighbor with kindness and with respect, and I would seek love over anger. It reminded me of a Bart Burton on Reading Rainbow and feeling like education was something fun and to be celebrated. It reminded me of Bob Ross and speaking in calm voice and teaching people, you know, through having them do it versus telling them what to do. And I thought that no better place for that than WPBA, no better place than time than right now when people seem to be so polarized. And what a better way to show people a different type of interview than simply have a conversation with someone versus asking someone questions for them to defend versus actually engaging in conversation. Yeah, because having a conversation also involves listening. And hopefully through listening, we learn and learn more about each other. Absolutely. Last week, Revolt Media and TV chairman Sean Diddy Combs hosted the annual Revolt Summit in Atlanta. It was a three-day event aiming to inspire, educate, and empower the black leaders of tomorrow as they chase dreams to the top. Diddy asked both you and Migo Strapper Offset to be the culture curators. What did that entail? Well, it entailed us hosting, you know, um, it entailed us communicating with one another. It's the only place where you see a bunch of musicians together that are not there for the sole purpose of music, but serving as mobilizers to get people in rooms to discuss the business behind music, mm-hmm. the culture behind music that, you know, there's a culture that created hip hop and that is the black experience in this country. That experience deserves lengthy conversation and this and and healthy decisions into where are we going next past music when people think about musicians oftentimes they think about the person that is on stage that person on stage often represents a plethora of people not only in listeners or fans but the people who actually serve as the team around that person so they're jobs creators if you look at a city like atlanta ti is one of the greatest rappers ever invented a genre of music called trap music And just into his 40s, he's just become a real estate developer. He's developing 143 affordable unit houses. Just down the street, he and I are rebuilding a 50-year-old restaurant that we formed together. There's so much going on within the culture of hip-hop that classically is known for four elements. Those elements would be b-boying or breakdancing. There would be DJing. There would be writing or what people would call graffiti. And there would be emceeing. But it seems within the last 30 years, the final, well, not final, but an additional or more progressed version of those four pillars, there's a fifth pillar, economics. What Russell Simmons has been able to do, what Sean Diddy Combs has been able to do with economics, what people like Jay Prince, Tony Draper, Luther Campbell, Master P, Baby and Slim has been able to do, has been able to be jobs creators, it's built companies, it's, it's, it's blew up things like IG and Twitter. And it's good that someone like Sean Combs will put all of us together in a room so that as we curate conversations, because ultimately that's all we're doing, putting people in the room to have conversations, 
that would usually miss one another. And out of those conversations, great ideas happen, television shows, music, but bigger business also happens too. So I'm proud to be one of the curators of this. Why do you think Atlanta is particularly well-suited for the Revolt Summit? Well, let's give Atlanta her just due. Atlanta has over 120 years of black success and middle class and working class that matriculates up the ladder. Mm -hmm. If you look at Alonzo Herndon in the early 1900s, owned barbershops, owned one barbershop that was exclusive to white men, but had black barbers. Out of this barbershop, you get conversations about stocks and bonds and insurance and things of that nature. Black people who were just as industrious and hardworking oftentimes could not get insured. He was able to broker deals with insurance companies that allowed him to insure the black population. There was a real working class, a real middle class. Those people were able to be insured. Those people built the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, which was the largest black-owned insurance company, one of the most dominant insurance companies in the early 1900s. That goes into a successful urban district, well, successful money district, Auburn and Edgewood Avenue. John Wesley Dobbs, the unofficial mayor of Atlanta for black people, creates an economic center and resource. His grandson later becomes the first black mayor of Atlanta. That black mayor mandates a 20, 25 to 29% minority and black participation shift in city contract. Out of that, you get a Herman Russell. Herman Russell goes on to help other people like Noel Khalil, God bless the dead, of the Columbia Group that now has 350 employees, makes $45 million annually and builds affordable housing all throughout the United States. 120 years of economic success, 120 years of a black working class and middle class. I don't think there's any better place in the world you would have it unless you took it back to the homeland or continent of Africa itself. You are a living, breathing encyclopedia of Atlanta history, Michael. In addition to all of that economic achievement, not to mention Atlanta being the cradle of the civil rights movement, it's an ideal combination. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Killer Mike about his new ATL-PBA TV show, Love and Respect with Killer Mike. Last week, you were on WABE's Closer Look with my colleague Grove Scott, talking about topics including your upbringing in Atlanta, the BLM protests, and work that still needs to be done for black people in our country. At the end of that conversation with Rose, you said how excited you were to speak with an idol of yours, Tyler Perry. Had you met him before? I've met him before, briefly. Um, he, We were invited to his studio opening, my wife and I. I had no idea that he even knew who I was. My wife told me that he had curated the list himself and personally picked the people to be there. Um, after speaking to such notable people as Jay-Z, Anita Baker, um, after being in the, in the presence of just everybody that had ever been on my grandparents' television <laughs> that they thought was going to credit to our community was in one room at one time. So I definitely didn't feel very important at all. And that was fine because I was looking at a, a group of people that had just in, in ways inspired me. And finally, at towards the end of the night, I see him standing and he's greeting people and meeting people. And my wife says, you go thank him. And so I go up to him to thank him and just say very quickly, thank you, Mr. Perry, for coming. And he grabs me and says, I'm so glad you could make it. I didn't know if you were coming, but I'm glad you're here. He held me for a few seconds and said, we will talk. And I took it with a grain of salt. I took it as, man, I met my idol. This man has done amazing things from sleeping in cars to making it out of abject poverty and just hard circumstance to becoming something. He really is someone I would like to pattern my work ethic after. I get this opportunity to do the show. I'm vetting people for who would my guests like to be put together a dream list. He's on that list. And lo and behold, he says yes. And he says yes when he doesn't have a movie coming out or a book. He's not on a promo campaign. He simply says yes because he's impressed um, by the character of the person I am and the work that I do in the community. And, it's, and, and I'm equally impressed by him. 
Um, and I just got a chance to have an amazing conversation with him that I think is going to make for um, make for a lot of inspiration for people. Did the rough times prepare you? And in that preparedness, why did you never give up? The most frustrating part of my life was having these dreams and hopes and knowing that all of this was in me. So to be in those moments and and hold on was the hardest part because there was no roadmap to get there and nobody there to help. He truly has an inspirational story, a story of Christ-like forgiveness. And I'm not no Christian, but when I read about the character of Christ, um, to understand the love, the compassion, and the want for better for even those that have harmed you is something that human beings aspire toward, but not many of us actually achieve. And I can honestly say I've truly been in the presence of someone like that. A lot of grace. Yes, absolutely. One thing my father gave to me is the man had the most stupid work ethic I've ever seen in my life. Rain, sleet, snows, hurricanes, lightning. He was going, a sun up to sundown. And what I can say about him is, and this I give him, even though we don't speak, he gets a check every month. I, he, I bought wow. a house and he's taken care of because he, I'm giving him exactly what he gave me. Financially, we were never hungry and the lights were never off, right? So I give him that. And, and I feel good about that because no matter what he did, he still made sure I had food on the yeah. table, right? So coming from that place, watching his work ethic, I definitely have that because I don't know what kind of man I would have been had I seen a man that didn't work. Since Tyler Perry opened his studio in 2008, he has worked tirelessly to give back and create equal opportunities for people of color, for all communities, both on yeah. and off screen. Have there been specific ways in which Tyler Perry has inspired you to give back to the Atlantic community? He helps me understand the importance of, I've, I've always understood it. the day I stopped working, I put a team of people out of work. And you think to, that you're going to get at some point where you have enough of accumulated enough wealth or things that you're going to walk away from. He talked about during the beginning of the pandemic, he could have pivoted and just went off to an island and hung out and let the thing pass. He and his team sat together and put together a 30-page manual for new ways to deal with interacting, how to do production safely. I don't think he's had any cases of COVID pop up on his campus there. He provided people with campus housing, has just done an amazing job of providing a manual for other people to say, this is how we handle the pandemic. So he chose to work when he could have not. It was amazing. He has at times of great peril with weather and circumstances people. When he couldn't get ships uh, or, or boats you know, in a port or he couldn't put trucks on the road, he could call and say, who's in this Walmart right now? How many people are there? How much is everyone's total? I have covered all of this. Oh. To make sure that people have the bare minimum necessities. And to me, that's beyond philanthropic. That's a person who understands and has suffered. And in the midst of their suffering, if you've ever suffered, if you've ever truly went without, you don't wish or want for people to take care of you, but you wish a want for a blessing out of nowhere. You say, if only, if only I had the $20 it took to make sure not only do I have toilet tissue, I have soup. For someone to think, to call a store and say that I'll be taking care of everyone up until the store closes, taking care of that tab, and for it to be guaranteed by them, it's to be anonymous. You know, people could walk away and give credit to the store and never know who helped them. Truly, he is a grace-filled person. Mm. Um, he's a person wise beyond his years, and any suffering he has endured, he makes sure that he attempts to relieve others of that. In the upcoming episode, which airs tomorrow, you both talk about the importance of Black women in your lives, strong Black women in Perry's life, his mother and yeah. aunt, he cites, yeah. led to the creation of his character, Medea. Tyler Perry's movies about Medea have been met with tremendous popularity as well as controversy. What are your thoughts about his portrayals of Black life and in 
particular his portrayal of black women? Well, I know the women who inspire the character of Medea. Mm -hmm. Those women are my grandmother and her sisters and my aunts and Miss Ophelia who hung out the window and asked us where we were going and why we were going there. And you know I'm going to tell your mother. Those women are common folk, blue-collar, working class, over um, more times than not Southern. Those women, although written to what some people would look down their nose at, um, in a very simple, easily understandable way, are as complex as any character who spoke is simple, but were, was considered more complex because us folks who went to college think it is, as any Zora Neale Hurston book. And I would remind people that Zora Neale Hurston, although celebrated in her death, wrote in the common black folks of North Florida and South Georgia's language. I could read her books very easily as a child, even as a dyslexic, because she was writing in a language that people around me spoke. I was happy to find out that she was also a hero of his, but I like to remind people that during her lifetime, she was shunned by people like Langston Hughes, who's also a luminary and a hero. She was shunned by people like Tansy Cullen. She was shunned by many of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance because somehow she didn't fit the mold of the talented tent. And I view Mr. Perry in the same way. I view him as being peers with some incredible filmmakers, right? But they didn't have the understanding and the depth of knowledge to see that there's a huge population of African-Americans that wish to be involved in going out to see plays. They just didn't have a desire to see what was on Broadway. So when he brought his plays through churches, eventually he learned to sell out those churches because people saw themselves in those characters. So just as Ham Hamilton can be a phenomenon, just as Finch's by August Wilson can be a phenomenon, so can Medea goes to church because my grandmother made me go get those compact discs, I mean the DVDs to watch. She attended um, church-like plays. So when I see a woman in Atlanta like Lolita Snipes who does these plays, I understand that there is an audience for this because Mr. Perry has made sure that this audience is represented and his audience has shown that there's an audience with their dollars. I want to give credit to Betty Klontz, my grandmother, uh -huh. who forced me to go to the drugstore bi-weekly mm -hmm. to buy Tyler Perry DVDs of your plays. And the first three times at, I complained. At like, the drugstore? Yeah, we would go to like CVS's they or were, They won't sell at the drugstore? They won't sell at the drugstore. Now, I don't know if they were legit. That's exactly why, that's where I, I was going I with know, this, that That's where I was going with this. Yeah, she would send me and my sisters up, they had a little Tyler Perry rack. Yeah. And we'd get our Tyler Perry, we brought back the DVDs. And I'd be like, Mama, why are we going to yeah. get, because she was raised me and she was Mama. And by the third movie, and I'm just like, this reminds me a lot of you. Mm. When you were at WABE a couple years ago, we were introduced. I was thrilled to meet you. We took two photos I still proudly show off. And I was, <laughs> I was especially excited to hear about your enthusiasm for the arts. I remember you're, yes. you're telling me about your daughter's love of visual art, taking her to the High Museum, and yeah. that led to the distinguished Atlanta-based artist Fahamu Peku nominating yeah. you to the High's Board of Directors. What are your thoughts about arts education and how we can make the arts in Atlanta accessible to more people? I think that I'd like to congratulate the board of the High Museum for being dedicated toward making sure everyone in this community is engaged. The High Museum has, I think, if not the biggest, close to attendership of black and people of color. I think over 40% black attendees. We have one, so we don't just have the highest number of black season ticket holders for sports, even in the arts, black people are coming and people of color are coming. And I think that that's an amazing thing because our board wants that and it says, I want more of that. So I would like to commend them for that. I think the arts are important. I'd like to thank Ms. Bishop, who was the head of the Art Talent Center at Frederick Douglass High School, Ms. Renfro, who was one of my first art teachers, Mr. Murray, who still is my art teacher and hero today, just took him to Bill Maher's concert 
Murray is still a huge part of my life. <laughs> I like to tell people that no matter what you think of the arts, if you give yourself a piece of paper and a pencil, or you give yourself a camera, you give yourself some paint, your mind is going to grow. Whatever that creative thing, whatever those neurons that are connected in your brain, when you're painting a portrait or you're taking a picture or you're you're doing anything artistic, they open up vast other vessels in your brain for other stuff. I'm a better dad because I'm an artist. I'm a better husband because I'm an artist. I'm a better human being because I go and I look at art and I stare and I wonder what was the person thinking? What does this mean? You know, even in the horrors of, of life, there are times where you can see beautiful things and it changes, you know. I'm a believer in the arts because the arts saved me and gave me purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm a believer in the arts because my art teacher, well, my music teacher, Miss Bishop, I remember in high school, she told all of us as kids, she said, I don't care if you're in the magazine program or not. I don't care if you're in the business talent center. You're here because you chose to be in the art talent center. And it's my job to make sure you go on to college with a scholarship in music or art. She took what she had, a bunch of talented kids before her, she honed our talented skills and got us to schools like Southern University for playing. She got us in schools like SCAD. She made sure that we went and our talents could be fulfilled. And she made sure that education was prominent, even in our, and preeminent, even in our art. And we understood that being artists, it was a tool to take you places. So I, art has been important in my life, it's important in my daughter's life now, and it has been important in my community. So whether it's the Apex Museum, which I also take my daughter to, mm-hmm. or the High Museum of Art, I make sure that art is an included part of our experience all. Michael Render, Run the Jewels isn't the only place where your name is synonymous with treasure. Thank you for your commitment to the arts, your love for public broadcasting. You're one of our greatest cheerleaders and for being such a gem in our community. Thank you. And I like to tell people I don't just support with kind words. I also donate when they ask for donations. And I like to encourage all of us to. It's very important that um, that we as a community keep public broadcasting alive and well. It's, it's some of the Again, some of the greatest people and personalities I've met, I've met on public television, and I'd like to see that legacy continue. And now you are among them. Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) Grammy Award-winning artist Killer Mike. He's the host of the new program Love and Respect with Killer Mike on our TV station, ATL-PBA. The weekly show airs on Friday and Sunday evenings at 10. More information appears on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with the Atlanta-based comedian Mark Kendall. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle, W. Kamau Bell. There is a rich history of black comedians addressing racial injustice, and Mark Kendall is among them. When Kendall and I spoke last year, he began with describing his comedic video, If Marta Came to Cobb County. In the sketch, we imagine a world in which 
several black guys plan on how they're going to rob pianos from people's homes on foot. (laughs) Pianos on foot. Right. Yeah. Robbing people's pianos. Yeah. And all the while taking public transportation. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The humor is exaggerated. It's clever. It's everything you expect satire to be. The topic is not so funny. The expansion of MARTA to Cobb County and beyond has been brought up in many Georgia legislative sessions to no avail. Why did you want to release this video, Mark? So I have been working a lot with uh, Atlanta filmmaker Bill Worley, and we had made plans to release you know, comedy videos on a regular basis. And the Marta video, we had actually had the sketch shot and edited for a number of months, but just with the way things were, it, we just chose not to release it. But then after being in quarantine for a while, and then also seeing the conversations that were starting to emerge about uh, race, racial justice, um, the way we police black people, um, then it felt more appropriate to release the sketch. And, um, and so that's how it came to be. Mm. Before we get to your second release, both of the videos are based on your one-man Dad's Garage show, The Magic Negro and Other Blackness. This show had legs, as the expression goes. You took it to the Alliance Theater and then performed The Magic Negro in other major U.S. cities. What is that show about? The Magic Negro and Other Blackness is uh, my one-person sketch show that explores the representation of Black men in the media and uh, uses comedy and satire to uh, look at Uh, several images that we see in the media a lot. And again, earlier this year, when talking with uh, Bill Worley, who's been really great at helping me take these pieces that were once on stage into video, we wanted to try to have, find ways to keep the same tone that was on stage, uh, while also taking advantage of the medium of video to explore new things. Uh, And so Bill is an excellent cinematographer as well as an editor. And he's been also, he's been so great about bringing in amazing collaborators as well uh, to help us make these videos what they are. Mm. Now there's a very different tone in your second release. This video is serious, fiercely so. It is age-restricted, and there's a trigger warning for language. Would you take us through your writing, Green Eggs, and the N-word? Yes, of course. So this piece uh, was the first piece that I wrote for my one-person show, like, years ago. So it was the first one that, that I did, and so I've you know, been performing this piece for quite some time on stage. Uh, However, when it came time to adapt it to video, I wanted to make it a little bit more clear because I couldn't be in the room with people as I performed it for them, if that makes any sense. Uh, So again, going back to, with the help of Bill Worley and Jenny Wentling, uh, who did art direction for us, and Haddon Keim, who did music and sound design for us, we were able to pull images of... Uh, things that were happening in the news or are happening in the news, uh, as well as uh, Jenny's excellent art direction to evoke the feeling of reading Rainbow, LeVar Burton's show from back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, as well as Haddon's um, composing and music to also evoke certain emotions that might otherwise be missed if, you know, I'm not able to there to perform it uh, live for you in the room. But it's an exploration of the N-word and the attention that we give it, the way it's treated. But also, I think something that the piece is trying to say is beyond just words, what other things are happening systemically, you know, that are also oppressing people. And I think the piece is perhaps also reminding folks not to forget those other things that also have a huge impact, even if that word is not necessarily being said all the time. Mm. Dick Gregory once said, It should never be called the N-word 
because how do you talk about a swastika by using another term? And I, I understand the power and the comparison he was making. Using the N-word and the takeaway is you shouldn't use the N-word. And I would like to think the actual word shouldn't be used. But what is it about when it's reduced to this sanitized reference to the N-word? Does that make sense, Mark? I think so. And I guess, you know, while I may not have like a super clear answer for it, I think that's why I explore using the word in the sketch, you know, and I try to do some side-by-side comparisons where I say the N-word, I say the actual word, but then I also take audio clips of people saying things that may not be the N-word, but, you know, in my opinion, they are still doing just as much damage. And so I guess, you know, the piece is sort of offering up several questions about the power of the word versus like our actions and how we can be doing both at the same time or perhaps one or the other, Uh, but they are all deserving of our attention uh, and change. I thought you made this video a few weeks ago. It is a tragic reminder of how ongoing this issue has been, this injustice that this was originally part of your Magic Negro show. Yes, well, there were significant updates that were done to both the Marta piece and the Green Eggs and Ham piece, where the core of it is definitely still the same, but definitely updated certain lines and things like that to make it feel more now and to make sure that I was referencing what was going on right now. And so that was definitely something that was important to uh, Bill and myself as we were making these videos. Mark, having had the pleasure of seeing you perform many times, I've never seen you express rage, which is perfectly appropriate in this video. Have you performed serious work before? Yes, for sure. And um, I think it's, you know, something that it's an interesting thing when you mention rage because there, I feel like there are a lot of ways to express it, you know? So there are times that I've performed where I may have been, you know, smiling, but the rage is definitely there. And actually I've been reading this book and um, in the book, it kind of talks about anger is not necessarily being like a bad feeling, but more so like it's letting you know that of a certain boundary you might have. And I feel like a lot of the pieces from the Magic Negro, as well as some of the videos that we've been putting out, something that I think perhaps comes up is you're you're talking about things that aren't displeasing, but you also feel a responsibility to be funny, you know, because you are putting it in the comedy category. But at the same time, as a performer, I'm I'm I try to be aware of like how I use anger, I guess, and how I choose to portray it, and trying to be more comfortable with being okay and how I express that. And so I guess like going, going forward, that's something that I try to be more aware of and I try to push myself to uh, express in ways that are productive. Well, in this instance, in that video, rage is perfectly understandable. And as an actor, you make it palpable for the audience. What feedback have you received from each of these videos? It's been positive. People have enjoyed them, people have liked them. Uh, Something that I guess has been surprising, uh, well, I mean, the feedback has been, uh, you know, people enjoy them, they think they're funny, they they really appreciate the um, filmmaking from Bill and um, and the acting, you know, from other characters like Ricky, who's in the sketch, as well as like Andre and his uh, handwork by the uh, Marta poster board that Jenny did. And so people have been loving it from like a filmmaking aspect, but I guess something that they, the comments that they've also appreciated has been, you know, the specificity of the pieces and how they are specific to Atlanta. And that was something I was kind of surprised by. So that's been cool to see. Thinking about virtual performance, as a comedian and actor, what is it like to perform without a live audience. It's difficult. You don't really get a lot of feedback with the exception of maybe the couple people that are on the Zoom call. 
and it's still comedy, but it's not quite doing stand-up. So it's like a new challenge. And then, you know, with doing the videos and reference to the videos, it's also very different, not really having an audience. So I try to make sure that I send the script or cuts of the videos, Bill and I both, to um, people that we know and trust for feedback. And that's kind of how we've been doing it. But it's a very different feeling. It's very different. Oh, yeah, because performers are energized by an audience, whether actors or musicians or dancers. That's the glory of live performance. And it's not the same on screen. You will release a third video called A LeBron Solution for Confederate Monuments. Yes. Having had the pleasure and hilarity of previewing this video, we were wondering if you could give our listeners a sneak preview of what the video will address. Absolutely. So the video addresses Confederate statues that are still standing. And I play a fictional character named Craig, and you're watching his commercial. And he's pitching you on a solution for these Confederate monuments. And so the idea is that Craig had LeBron James statues made years ago because he thought he was going to win the finals in a year that he ended up losing. And so he he wasn't able to like unload these statues on anybody. But then he sees what's been happening with the Confederate monuments in a, you know, the summer renewed conversation around them. And so his suggestion is that you keep the Confederate statues exactly where they are, but then you build a bigger statue above it of LeBron James dunking on him. And so uh, we were able to collaborate with Chris Nick, who's a very gifted special effects person, and he was able to do the special effects for us, and he was he was amazing. How can I be so confident that people will go for something as crazy as this just to keep up some statues honoring traitors? It's simple. This is America, where we value white people's emotions over everything else. A Confederate statue standing on its own is a big thumbs up to racism, but a Confederate statue with LeBron James dunking on it? That's my movie pitch for Space Jam 3. Oh, it is brilliant. And I have to tell you, Mark, we laughed throughout. I mean, there is not a moment of that video that is not hilarious. I know you're going to get a great response from the public. The humorist and writer Mary Hirsch once said, humor is a rubber sword. It allows you to make a point without drawing blood. Why is comedy an effective way to express your thoughts and feelings about the tragedy of racial injustice? Mm -hmm. You know, I think comedy is really helpful for a number of reasons. I mean, when I think about Confederate monuments, you know, in particular, I feel like they're being used to tell a story so that people have this emotional connection, you know, to the Confederacy. So then they grow up with those images and those stories and they kind of hold on to these racist beliefs, you know? And I feel like that's how a lot of us learn things is through stories, it's through narratives, it's through images and things like that. The thing that's nice about comedy is that you can go into a room or show someone a video, I guess in this case, to someone that has a view that maybe doesn't match up with your own, or you could show a video to a racist. And the thing that is cool about comedy is that if you can get them to laugh, usually laughter comes from a place of understanding, and those are perhaps maybe the beginning steps of someone you know, changing their mind. And not that my objective is to change people's minds per se, but as a means of having a conversation or starting conversations, I think that it's, it's useful. I think through something like comedy, it's just a powerful means of expression to communicate how you feel on something that, to someone that may not otherwise understand it. Atlanta-based comedian, actor, and Dad's Garage Ensemble member, Mark Kendall. You can find Mark's videos on his Facebook page, and YouTube channel. A link to those videos will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, 
we'll have a sneak preview of my conversation with the author Gary Steingart. His new book, Our Country Friends, is being hailed as the first great literary novel of the pandemic. You're tuned to WABE at last. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Gary Steingart's new novel, Our Country Friends, has quickly gathered acclaim as the first great literary novel of the pandemic. Beginning in March of 2020, Our Country Friends tells the tale of several privileged friends who've gathered to wait out what they assume will be a short quarantine. Steingart will be in conversation via Zoom with author Nathan Englander this evening as part of the book festival of the Marcus Jewish Community Center of Atlanta. Tickets for that event are available via the MJCC's website, atlantajewishconnector.com. Monday of next week on WABE, we'll air my conversation with Gary Steingart about our country friends. But first, I wanted to share a preview of our talk ahead of his MJCC event this evening. Here... The author speaks to his comedic timing and comparison to the 1980s drama The Big Chill. Part of what's striking in this novel are references that characters make just as that thought may occur to the reader. For example, Masha compares Sasha's gathering with his friends to a personal reenactment of the big chill. I mean, it was a nanosecond after that registered in my head, Gary. In your creative process, do such associations and humor come as quickly as they feel on the page? Yes, very much so. I was just writing this and all of a sudden I remembered the big chill. And it's funny because I think some of our younger readers will have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, a movie in the 1980s, and I remember being obsessed with that movie. It was on some network Is it when I was a kid. We didn't see it in the movie theater. And I was obsessed with it because I didn't even, I did not understand all of it because I was a child and it was about very grown-up relationships. It's the conceit of the movie, uh, for those who haven't heard or seen it. It's a group of University of Michigan graduates, one of whom commits suicide, and the rest of them gather for his funeral. And so, you know, it has some similarities to our country friends. There wasn't a suicide in this book, but all these friends are gathered because of a tragedy. In this case, it's the pandemic. But um, I remember being obsessed with that movie and not fully understanding it because I didn't understand grownups because I was a little kid and I didn't understand English well enough to get catch all of the nuances of, of language and class and all, all these things among these educated groups of people. But for some reason, I thought, wow, if I ever, ever figured this, this movie out, I, I will have really become an American. So this, um, as this was going on, as I was writing this, I, I thought that Masha would maybe, because she also grew up around the time I came here and, and was the same age as I am and the same age as Sasha, that she would probably make that reference. And then I went and downloaded The Big Chill and watched it for the first time in God knows how many years, since the 80s, and absolutely loved it still. Oh, um, yes. And the soundtrack is so yeah. amazing. Of course, of course, the soundtrack, starting with, uh, I heard it from the grapevine. Yes, and I remember when I had enough pages together and I was sort of telling my brilliant editor about what the book, you know, he asked me what I was working on and I said I had abandoned that NYU novel and I was working on, uh, and I called it uh, Chekhov Meets the Big Chill. (laughs) (laughs) And and he said, okay, that sounds intriguing, you know. (laughs) And intriguing it is author Gary Steingart. His new novel is Our Country Friends, and he'll be in conversation with author Nathan Englander this evening via Zoom, presented by the Marcus Jewish Community Center of Atlanta, part of their book festival. Tickets for that event are available 
via the MJCC's website, AtlantaJewishConnector.com. We'll air my full interview with Gary Steingart on Monday, November 22nd, right here on WABE City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Grammy Award-winning performer Tony Lindsay and music director Terry Lynn Carrington tell us about a Nat King Cole Christmas coming to the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center this Saturday. Plus, we'll hear about Georgia Ensemble Theater's production of Ain't Misbehavin', a review of Fats Waller's song. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.